Our reading from the Holy Scripture this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase." Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the water of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has completely been shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days." Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. This is the word of the Lord. We are at the end of the book of Daniel, and... Verse 1 through 3 is very much the in focus of the book of Daniel. We have seen the last vision, which is from, verse, from chapter 10 through verse 12. It is summed up in those verses, and uh, really everything that we have seen in all the other visions have been pointing to the glorious promises of verse 1 through 3. There will be a time of trouble. There will be a time unlike the world has ever known up to that point, a time that will change things. This seems to point to the time of the coming of Rome and what literally politically changes the world. Uh, We've had a couple of other visions that have shown us this. In chapter 2, verse 40 through 43, we read this. Uh, 
And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clays." That's really a prophetic vision of what the world politically was going to look like after the ascendancy of Rome. Rome did away with all the other great empires, and we live in the toes. We live in the inheritor kingdoms of Rome. Uh, Rome's influence continues. In chapter 7 of Daniel... And verse 7 through 8, that was returned to. There we read this. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, there was eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Again, the fourth kingdom, the fourth beast, the fourth change, there will be a time of trouble like no one has ever experienced before. This came. Rome changed the world, but that is meaningless from a godly point of view. That is just a small detail in history. It will mark some much more significant things. The promised deliverance of God will happen about the same time as this changing of the world. God has been promising deliverance since the Garden of Eden, God has been promising that the relationship between man and God will be restored organically and fully by what God is doing covenantally, and that will take place. The the fourth beast will arise, but really its rising is only to set the stage for what comes after its rising. And again, going back to the other visions, having heard about the statue which has iron and clay and all of that. What follows next is Daniel 2, verse 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The same pattern follows in the vision in chapter 7. After we hear about the fourth beast and it being different than all the others, in verses 11 through 14, we read this. I watched then because of the sounds, the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his, his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is Christ. Rome will arise. It will be a kingdom like no other earthly kingdom. It will change the course of human history, but that is totally nothing compared to a kingdom that will grow up in it, a kingdom that will cause men to know God, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, this is the pinnacle of the end of their age. Jesus Christ's kingdom will separate B.C. from A.D. It will separate the time before and the time after. Jesus' kingdom will change the world in a way that Rome can only just kind of set the stage for. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will literally change history, really. And uh, this will be attested to by a resurrection of the dead. Now, it's only a resuscitation of the dead. It's not all the dead. The angel says many will rise, but... Some of them will rise to eternal damnation, and some of them will rise to eternal life, but it's not all of them. It's just a bunch. It's, it's an attestation that the kingdom has come, and we read that in the Gospel of Matthew. There, in chapter 27, Matthew tells us what happens when the, the, the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom, beginning in verse uh, 50 of chapter 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The next line is quite telling. We return to the cross, but we hear what the centurion says at the cross. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. So you'll have an amazing attestation that 
the kingdom that shall never end has come because you'll have this partial resurrection showing that God is making his promises, and here it is. And then at the last of verse 1 through 3, we will have an age of great evangelism. Blessed will be those who turn men to righteousness, who, who speak and, and they, they, they bring about the conversion of men under God's hand. Well, the book of Acts begins like this, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And of course, that is the plot of the book of Acts, the gospel going out from Jerusalem, the gospel being carried by Jesus' disciples to the ends of the earth, This is what everything we have been reading about in Daniel is about. Time will literally be changed. God will institute on earth a change that cannot be missed so that even pagans will number their calendars based on this event. The coming of Christ, the beginning of his kingdom the gospel going out in a way like it had not gone out before. This is what God, through Daniel, has been emphasizing. If you have been reading the prophet Daniel and not realized this is the end of the age, this is the change, this is the former days turning into the latter days, you have totally missed the book of Daniel. But that does mean that while the book of Daniel is a prophetic book... Everything that it has prophesied about the future is now in our past. Well, almost everything. There is a prophecy in Daniel that cannot be denied, but that it is a future event for us. But it is briefly mentioned, and everything else points to the advent points to the Christ among us, points to the cross, points to the open tomb. You could even call the book of Daniel a gospel in its way because it is so Christ-centered, so gospel-centered, it is all about the Lord Christ. As you might imagine, its original readers wanted to know when would this end of the age, this changing of all things, be? Well, our chapter gives an answer, uh, but not as clearly as one might want. When will this wondrous thing take place? Well, in a time and times and half a time. Or this many days, and blessed is the one who waits till that many days. Uh, 
It is definitely an answer, but it's not exactly 328 years or what have you. I don't actually know the actual number. But what are we to do with it? Well, quite frankly, in the history of God's people, we've done a huge amount with it. We've spilled ink over this like nobody's business and written whole books about it. Um, There are dispensational interpretations of these numbers galore. But while they are pursued by quite a number of evangelicals, Uh, They miss the mark completely because they assume that Daniel is about the second coming of Christ, and it's not. It's about the first coming of Christ. And so the dispensationalists pursuing what these numbers mean, uh, they can't hit the mark. And so there's really no point in looking at what they have said because they're looking for the wrong coming. But there are also a number of orthodox understandings to this time, times, and half a time. Uh, They don't necessarily agree on a number of things, however, such as what is this unit of time? What is a time and times and half a time? Uh, Where does the counting begin from? Uh, Where does it end? Now, it ends in Jesus Christ. All the orthodox understandings Uh, point to Christ, but does the counting end in Christ's coming in his birth? Does it end in his week of passion? Does it end in his crucifixion? Does it end in his resurrection? There is not a, a solid agreement among people who are rightly understanding the passage, but the point seems to be that it will take place at the moment of God's choosing. This is the pinnacle of all the Hebrew Bible. This is what God has been moving his people to. It will be the end of their age. Everything will change. It will happen in Christ. Tell the prophet when it happens. Hey, we got it on the books. It is when time, times, and half a time happen It is within so many days, it will take place at this particular time. And when you turn to the New Testament and look at how the apostles understood the coming of Christ as far as timing, uh, you you read things like this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the question is directed to Paul, the same question that the original readers might have had in Daniel. When Christ came, what was the timing? Well, the timing was exactly when God wanted it to be. It was the fullness of time. It was the right moment in God's plan for Jesus Christ to enter the world. Why was it the fullness of time? You know, the apostle doesn't say. He says it is. It is the perfect time for Christ to come. We're going to have to trust the Holy Spirit of God that that's true. 
Because the apostle is speaking for Christ, that's what the term apostle means, he is speaking from the Holy Spirit, he is telling us that the timing is in God's hands, and this vision points to the entire journey to when we get to chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The great wonder, Daniel uses the term wonder, the great wonder that is 1 through 3 will happen on God's timetable in time, times, and half a time. It will happen in God's timing because everything God does works that way. It may seem random to the people moving through time, but God has it on his calendar. And it's going to happen exactly when God plans it to happen, because that's the way God works. God rules the universe. He doesn't have a single molecule wandering around going, I'm free from God, I'll do what I want. So God's got it in hand. It will take place in his timing. But it's not that clear, and that may be on purpose. Verse 4 is an amazing verse in a way. The prophet is supposed to speak for God, and the prophet does. But with that in mind, what are we to make of verse 4? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Daniel, here is your book. Uh, God has used you to reveal revelation to your people. Now what I want you to do is close it, and it will be sealed. What are we to do with that? Well, it certainly cannot mean that Daniel is not to publish it abroad because as time goes on, many are going to run to and fro and knowledge will increase. When I was beginning my Christian life as a child uh, and I read the book of Daniel, I read it in the Living Bible and Kenneth Taylor was definitely uh, premillennial and um, dispensational. And he translates this verse, he paraphrases this verse in such a way as to make it sound like the information age. You know, information will increase and knowledge will become worldwide. I'm not really quoting, but that's kind of the way it was written. He saw it as the far future. He saw it as our time. Uh, The book is sealed because it's about the second coming of Christ, but people will understand it when Christ comes the second time. That doesn't seem to fit everything we have seen about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is about the first coming of Christ. It is the promise of the Messiah. And this running to and fro is about the prophecy being sealed. But men are going to read it from the moment Daniel wrote it. The book of Daniel will pass into the hands of the church. Men will read it as scripture. Jesus will quote the book of Daniel in the Gospels. It's not a hidden book at all. It's not been sealed away. Uh, So what does that mean? Well, the second part of the verse seems to picture a dawning comprehension. It pictures a revelation from God that you kind of got to live through to understand. Uh, 
many will read these words and they will, quote, run to and fro. They will seek knowledge and knowledge will grow in time, but it will not be readily understood at this moment. And that is God's intention. And that seems to be what sealing up the book means because the prophet himself is sealed. In uh, verse 8, Daniel asks this question. He gets his answer. No, well, yeah. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And the angel, the divine angel, it, it's, it's God the angel, says this. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So Daniel has heard the words, and they are revelation. Daniel has given the words to the church as God intended, but even the prophet himself says, Lord, I don't completely understand what's being said here. Could you let me in? And God says, no, effectively. Go your way, but the book is sealed. It is sealed even to you, but men will run to and fro. They will be seeking knowledge, and they will be seeking knowledge in the light of this prophecy, And as time goes by, the meaning of the prophecy will dawn greater and greater on the church of God until in the full light of what has been said, you see it. And that is exactly how things worked. If you are familiar with the history of God's people in the 400 years before the coming of Christ, they will end up breaking into various sects and divisions. They will be breaking into groups that, if you read the New Testament, will be familiar to you. People like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People like the Herodians. People like the Zealots. People like the Essenes, although they're not mentioned in the New Testament. They will fragment in their approach to their walk with God. And among a number of them, there will be people who will study diligently the promise of the coming Messiah. And if you look at what they made of the promise, some of them are very, very off base. And some of them are amazingly close. If you read what the Essenes thought Messiah would be like, they believe that Messiah will be in some way divine, He will walk among men as a human being. He will die for the sins of the people. And then he will come back to life in 400 years. There will be a 400-year span between his death and his returning to life. So close, miss the cigar. But it shows people running to and fro and studying the prophecies of God. The truth is there, but God has closed the prophecy you're really going to recognize what God is doing when he does it. But he has promised it to his people, even in such a way that the book is sealed. He will be glorified when things take place. They will take place exactly on his timetable. Things will not take place on man's timetable. They will take place on God's timetable. And man won't even realize what he's read in perfection Until God's done it, the book is sealed. 
Compare this against, say, what God said to Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk prophesied at a time when the Babylonians were going to destroy the promised land and drive people out of the promised land. God's wrath was upon them. And in chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, God says this to Habakkuk. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets. Make it plain that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, Uh, it will not tarry. So with looming wrath on the horizon and people truly needing to hear this message, needing to hear that the just shall live by faith, God says, I'm writing this with very big letters, and you cannot miss what I'm saying. The man who runs with a tablet can read it while he's running. I am being very clear and forthright. That's not what he says to Daniel. He says, seal up the book, and the reason you don't understand it is it's sealed. God communicates in various ways and for various purposes, and as Solomon tells us, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And many will run to and fro, and knowledge will increase over the time as that takes place. It will be a gradual dawning. But you, Daniel, you have done your part. You are now at least well in your 90s. You could, in fact, be pushing 100 at this point. Uh, The scripture says that God will reward the righteous with long life. Well, Daniel's had it. Uh, At about 100, I'd think, you know, I'm rewarded enough. I'm I'm okay to go home now. But Daniel has has walked with God, and the last words in Daniel are, go your way, realize that your rest is coming soon, and you will rest until you rise at the end of the days, not just at the end of the age, but at at the end of the days, you will arise to your inheritance. It is a reference to the resurrection of the dead, not just a resuscitation like happened to, uh, you know, the... uh, um, Yeah, there we go, Lazarus, thank you. Um, You know, poor Lazarus had to rise and die again. It's a reference to you will, you will rise from the grave, you will grab your inheritance, it will be forever. And this is one of the chiefest, chiefest reasons liberals doubt the uh, validity of the book of Daniel. They doubt it because it is so very accurate in its prophecies, and they doubt it especially because it so clearly refers to the resurrection of the dead. In the liberal mind, the Bible is a matter of evolution. Among their own, they will use this term. Uh, Darwin made the term evolution popular, and since him, academia, especially unbelieving academia, has embraced the concept of evolution, and they have thrown it not just over biology, but literally over every discipline. So they believe in the evolution of civilization. They believe in the 
evolution of the written text. And in their mind, early religious people could not have believed in a resurrection from the dead. I don't know why, but that is absolute established orthodoxy among them. In early times, men could not understand a resurrection of the dead. That was not part of the scriptures. The resurrection of the dead is a very late doctrine. It comes up really right before we have the New Testament. And um, Daniel refers to it so clearly that Daniel can't be written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C. It is a forgery written just a few centuries before Jesus because that. Well, the only problem with their theory is it doesn't really hold water. It is true that if you look for number of references to the resurrection of the dead, you will find more references in the New Testament to it than you will in the Old Testament. That's the truth. You know, if you take number of times it shows up, the New Testament carries it. But it is simply a lie to say you won't find the resurrection of the dead elsewhere in Scripture or in any part of Scripture, to be honest. The resurrection of the dead is taught many places in the Hebrew Bible. In the psalm that we sang coming into worship, that's really the pinnacle of the idea of the psalm. Keep in mind what you sang as we go back through it. The psalmist begins saying, Rich and poor, I want you to listen to me. I'm about to sing a dark statement, a mystery, and you and I are going to listen to it together. Uh, This is about, should I be afraid when wicked people surround me and want to hurt me? And it does sound like the psalmist probably is in that condition. The wicked have surrounded him, and they're fairly well off. They've got the resources to do him damage. And so the psalmist says, Shall I fear when the wickedness of my foes is nipping at my heels? Those who have the wealth and the riches and the power to harm me, should I be afraid? And then the psalmist says, Well, they're not as powerful as they may suppose. Because even though they have all this wealth and riches, they are not able to pay the price to keep a man from dying. Every man's going to die, including them, and no matter how much wealth they pour towards avoiding that, God will never accept it. He describes it as a ransom from death. God has cursed men to die, and you would have to pay God a ransom for you not to die And the richest man on earth can't do that. He can't pay enough money to God to buy off his life or his brother's life. The cost never ends, says the Hebrew. Uh, You would have to have an infinite value to buy that. And so they can't do it. And not only that, they see that everybody dies. Uh, the, The brutish die, he uses a term there for those who are like animals. The wicked die, but even the wise He says, the wise die too. Everybody sees that everybody dies. We're all going to die. And these enemies of his are going to die. And when they die, death will be their shepherd. Death will lead them. 
they're not coming back from death in any way. In fact, it just gets worse. Death elongates into hell. But then around verse 14 of Psalm 49, the kicker is, but you will redeem my life from the grave. You will reach down into the grave and you will retrieve me. Now, everybody sees that even the wise die. And the psalmist says, I'm going to die just like the wicked. But the wicked are going to be greeted by death the shepherd, who is going to shepherd them off into hell. And eventually the righteous will rule over them. They will never ever come out of their graves back to the earth. The, the land they walked on and they claimed for their own, they named with their own names, they will never touch it again. They will be off into damnation and death. But God will reach into the grave and redeem me out of it. I will have gone there, but God will pull me out. God will receive me. I will be part of the just that rules over the wicked on the, the dawning. So why should I fear them? They can kill me. It's going to be reversed. That is an absolute reference to the resurrection of the dead. I will stand on the earth over the graves of the wicked. I will live on God's earth after I've died because God will reach into the grave and bring me out and I will be his. Psalm 73 says, when I, when I envied the wicked, I was like an animal, but uh, I went into your, your tabernacle and I saw the things of eternity. Um, I'm changed. I don't have the same attitude. Who have I in heaven but you, and there's no one on earth I desire but you. You will take me by my hand, you will lead me by your counsel, and afterwards you will lead me into glory. What is that but a reference to the resurrection of the dead? And this is all Old Testament. And this is not the only examples I could bring up. If you go looking for the resurrection of the dead, you will find it all over the Old Testament. It has been a promise to God's people from the very beginning. There is a certain self-interest that men have. Why have you come to Christ? Why, why have you laid hold of him? Well, you've done it because God has given you the grace to desire it. But there has still been in you a longing. Uh, any of you here care whether you live forever? That important to you? Or, you know, it's okay for you to go into non-existence or into hell. That's all right. You don't mind doing that. Of course not. Human beings were created to live forever. The curse was the curse of death. When Jesus Christ saves us from the curse of death, the resurrection of the dead is an absolute part of that. I was amazed in seminary how my liberal professors openly said, you know, the dead don't rise again. The dead are just memories that God has. The idea of eternal life is that God remembers you, but you don't really exist. That satisfy the longings of your heart? that speak to, the, to the, the image of what death is to you? The good news is that God is not a liberal. 
and that God has promised in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the dead. And the last words to faithful Daniel are, go your way, you may not understand all the prophecy that God has given through you, and that's intentional, but the resurrection is yours. Old man, you will arise at the end of the days, you will arise to your inheritance, death is not the end, you are promised to live forever. This is not poetry, this is not an image, this is the promise of God.